cliffcentral.com. How are you doing? Always well, Jonathan. Other than the fact that tomorrow is probably the worst day in in years. For an anarchist, I'm sure it is. It's voting day. Let's all vote for our favorite oppressor. Yay. <laughs> it's brilliant. So uh, we're recording this just before the elections. Uh, it's not going to be an election chat, actually. We're going to stay far away from that stuff. We're too cool for that. Everyone else has done it. Uh, we will do a uh, sort of rehash of the elections once we know the results and things are exciting. I oh, hope. This is new to me. Yeah, I'm telling you, we're going to do it. It's almost like I'm your employee or something. I thought we were partners. Shocker. <laughs> right. Okay. So this week we've got uh, a guest. Uh, Ramon is uh, uncertain of the topics, not of the guest. Uh, but It's something with sports ball. Yeah, it's, it's something with sports ball. Yeah, the golden so. bulls. What? <laughs> Yeah, so um, the weekend before the Lions hopefully win the uh, Super Rugby, which I'm sure you can care less about. Is that the one of the round ball or the octagonal one? Uh, yeah, let's let's go with whichever you feel you you, you feel best about. Perfect. Um, okay, so this week our guest is uh, none other than Ross Tucker. Uh, many of you may know Dr. Ross Tucker as uh, a sports scientist. Uh, he currently consults to World Rugby. Uh, he's also uh, involved in many issues in sports, uh, including cycling, which he has an active running commentary on. Uh, and uh, he also has some interesting views on uh, some of our athletes who will be competing at the Olympic Games shortly. So, Ross, uh, I see you taking a nice swig of water there. Welcome to the show. Good to have you. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. I'm, I'm really grateful to be with you. Uh, Enjoy your approach to issues, and hopefully we can do the same for sport. Thanks a lot. Oh, well, the pleasure's all ours. I mean, it's not often we have a PhD on our show. Uh, <laughs> so I think, I think you're the first one. Oh, is he the first one? No, I don't know. We've had others, but it's, but it's cool. It's good to have more. So, first so, one in, in sports so, ball. So some, right. some first one in sports ball. <laughs> Marvelous. That's going, that's going in the official bio. <laughs> okay, so, so let's, let's uh, get straight into it. Um, I've taken some uh, serious flack uh, recently, uh, which is fine because I actually have a thick skin. But I've taken some serious flack um, for my criticism of Casa Semenya, some stuff which was just a, a joke, really. Um, but it is joke-based, uh, based on context. Um, and the context, really, is that Costa has been quite a controversial figure since she came onto the athletic scene. So for those of uh, the people listening who haven't been following, haven't read um, your website. Uh, I know you're now a blogger who publishes um, a columnist from the Times. Uh, but for those people who haven't particularly read that through that stuff, can we start at the beginning, go through it relatively quickly? Yeah, so the beginning, as far as we're concerned in sport, is 2009. And an 18-year-old South African, Castor Semenya, goes to Berlin, wins the gold medal, having never before even run at that level internationally. 
in what was one of the fastest times in history. I think at the time it was the 14th best time ever. Now, that, that alone normally would be cause for suspicion. But the thing with her blows up massively because there are instantly allegations that she's actually a man. So that was the, that was the first report, was that Casta Semenya was male competing in the female division. Now, you're a doctor, and, and we'll get into it a little bit. It's not quite as simple as that. It's not a, it's not a question if she's male or female. We, we now recognize that there's a category of individuals that we call intersex, which briefly means that they have what are called ambiguous genitalia, and there's, there's usually a mismatch between their, their chromosomal or genetic sex and their physical appearance. So, so that, that puts Castasemenia in the spotlight. If you remember, she came back to South Africa in 2009 and all hell broke loose. Julius Malema got involved. Winnie Mandela got involved. The Minister of Sport, it was just yeah, chaos. political. Oh, unbelievable. And it was, as many things, and it, it will get again, it gets racially charged, the sexism allegations and so on. So it was pretty volatile back then. And um, we know that some intervention was then uh, made by the IWF because – by the middle of 2010, she was back running again, but not nearly as fast as she had been before. She then got slower and slower over the next few years um, until last year, July, when the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the highest authority for sport in Switzerland, uh, based in Switzerland, heard an appeal from an Indian sprinter who has a similar condition to Semenya. And that appeal was basically that the policy that regulates the testosterone level of these women or intersex individuals competing in the female category could not be enforced because there was insufficient evidence for testosterone and it was a discriminatory policy. So therefore, athletics officials have to show that it, that it has a good basis. So as a consequence of that, the, the, the intervention that that had, which was to limit the level of testosterone that women could compete at, was removed, and all of a sudden, a handful of athletes have improved by five or six percent this year. So that's that's what brings us to where we are now. Okay, and and, and, and percentage points increase increases in in sort of sportsmen at that level, sportsmen and women at that level, are huge. Oh yeah, I mean the Olympic. You know when Usain Bolt won that Beijing one hundred meter race, and he looked. You, I'm sure you can recall. He was yeah, with his arms through as he went through the finish line. That, that was a one percent margin of victory. So when we're talking 4 or 5%, we're talking about the difference between being in the frame and being basically a club athlete, a decent club athlete. It's, a, it's, it's enormous. So, so the effect has been quite profound. And what it's done is it's put Semenya in a position now where she'll go to Rio and, and she's, she is the most certain gold medalist in the Olympic Games. I mean, there's no such thing as a 100%, but I would uh, remortgage my house on Semenya winning gold in the 800. Yeah. She's likely also to compete in the 400 and could win that too. And unfortunately, or maybe in a, I guess in some ways it's good to have this conversation, is when that happens, all hell will break loose again because people still don't understand how this issue should be dealt with in sports. So is the controversy really about uh, testosterone levels? Because, I mean, in, in bodybuilding, for example, what, what we call steroids is just testosterone in different formats, right. as far as I know, and that increases muscle, uh, muscle size, leanness, uh, power, that sort of thing. So, is this just yeah. a question of she has far more testosterone than her competitors? Well, that's what it boiled down to. So, when the RWF created their policy around hyperandrogenism, which is the word, so 
androgens are based, the word literally means to make male. So testosterone is one example of that. It's the most well-known example. Mm -hmm. And the IWF policy around this was created specifically around testosterone levels because their argument was that there is complete separation between men and women in the absence of some pathology. So you can visualize a curve of testosterone levels for men and a curve for women, and theoretically there's no overlap unless the person has some pathology. Now, I'm talking to a doctor here, so you would know this, is that if you see a male with testosterone levels down in the single figures, you would regard that person as having some condition needs sorting out. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, if you see a female who's got double-digit testosterone levels, that's a sign of some pathology. Some, it's either a tumor or a genetic or a hormonal issue. So, so yeah, that's what it boiled down to, and that's also what CAS dismissed for the reason that they felt there was insufficient evidence that this testosterone gave these intersex athletes an advantage. And I, I mean, I don't agree with it. And, and you've just, you've just brought up yourself that we dope with testosterone specifically for those benefits. Mm. And there's no reason to think, in my opinion, that the testosterone you inject through a syringe is any different to that which your body produces. So just, just, uh, for those who aren't aware, just, Give us the levels that the that the athletics community had set the bar at, sure. and 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 what by removing the bar where the levels of some athletes currently are. Yeah, sure. So, in two thousand and nine, before all this blew up on the IWF and Semenya and us, <laughs> uh, if you'd opened a textbook, you would have seen that the female level was between naught and I used to call it about three, and the units were nanomol per liter. It's just a concentration. And the male level ran from 10 to 30. So what we were basically saying is that the upper, upper level for women was, was one-third of the lower level for, ma- for men with no overlap. And so the IWF then went along and they did testing at the 2011 World Athletics Championships. And what they found is that 99% of women fall under that level of three. So if you're a female competitor in track and field... 99% or 99 out of 100 of you have got testosterone under 3. Then there's a few that and lie that's, And that's athletes that they were and testing. That's, that's athletes, and right? in athletes, you would assume with low body, uh, uh, body mass indexes, low levels of body fat, they would uh, have relatively for, for their sex or yes. gender, whatever we're picking today is the word, um, they would have relatively high levels of testosterone, lower levels of estrogen and things like that. Exactly. So there's a theory that having higher levels of testosterone selects you out as an elite athlete, male or female. It's not quite as simple as that because performance is complicated. There are hundreds of things, but testosterone certainly is one of the more important ones. Mm. So so what the IWF then does is it measures the values. They, they tested 847 or something female athletes at those world championships. And they found that there were six athletes who were subsequently diagnosed as having one of these intersex conditions. So that's as I said, a condition where your genetic programming is that you would have been male, but for reasons that we could go into perhaps, you you either can't use the hormone or you can't make certain other hormones, and you develop characteristics that make you look more female or halfway between male and female, basically intersex. And the lowest of those was 15. So so what you've got here basically is that 99% of women fall under 3 and the intersex athletes go from 15 up to about 30. So we're talking 500 to 1,000% greater levels of testosterone. And the point there is that that 15 to 30 
lies well inside the male range. So, so the males are between 10 and 30. And on that basis, they set the cutoff for 10. So we know that anyone who was identified as being intersex from 2009-10 onwards was only competing if their testosterone levels had been lowered medically. And as of 2015, July, that limitation or that ceiling was taken away, and that is the controversy that will erupt in Rio in a few weeks' time. And Castor's uh, testosterone levels, do we know them? Semenya's, no, we don't. We don't. She's one of the, she did compete in the 2011 World Champs, so she's one of those between 15 and 30, but it's anyone's guess specifically what they are. So, so the controversy here really is that these intersex individuals don't really fit between uh, male or female. Because I mean, the sports are divided according to sex as of this moment. So they are in between. I mean, they've got testosterone levels of men, but they have uh, characteristics of women. They look like women. So the, yep. the, the problem is, how do we classify them in a sport? I assume that's exactly the issue. So, so there's two there's two ways to look at this. The one. And I'll tell you both of them exactly as they, as they would be stated, and then we can, I'll tell you what my opinion is. One of those is that the reason, the reason we separate men and women into categories in sport is basically because we're trying to protect women. Now, there will be people who, who respond to that and say, oh, how can you say something like that? But the reality, biologically, in terms of performance in sport, is that the difference between men and women is so large that if you let them compete in one category – the best woman in history in any event would be beaten by 500 men per year. So the, the world record in the marathon, for example, was 473rd on the men's list last year. It's outside the top 5,000 in history. So if we didn't draw that line in the population and say men on one side, women on the other, the biggest advantage you would ever have for sports is being born male. So therefore, we, we separate them because we recognize that they can be equal, but they are different hmm. and therefore need fair competition. So the requirement for fairness is the reason we create the separation. On the other side of the debate is the argument that an individual like Castor Semenya or any of these other intersex athletes has been born with an advantage as a consequence of having this condition that is natural and no fault of their own. And therefore, it's just their luck in the same way that uh, Usain Bolt is lucky to have fast muscle fibers or in the same way that uh, Michael Phelps is supposedly lucky to have big hands and big feet, which is crazily <laughs> simplified, but still. Um, people argue that it, the sport is all about genetic advantages. And so therefore, Semenya has a genetic advantage and therefore she should be allowed to run. And so that's basically the two sides of the fence on this particular argument. And, uh, and, and yeah, people can make up their minds about those two. My, my leaning is towards the first one. Um, and I would actually reject the second one because when we look at uh, Usain Bolt in the 100, we don't compete in categories of fast twitch muscle fiber, for example. When we, when we watch LeBron James playing basketball, we don't compete in basketball in categories of height. We do compete in categories of sex, and the advantage that Semenya has, that genetic advantage moves her not all the way but part the way across into a new category. And so to me, it's not the same thing as with Usain Bolt, and, and I would argue that, that that line has to be defended. And if we don't defend that line, um, what essentially then happens is 
the three and a half billion women roughly in the world uh, become marginalized because what, what actually is going to happen is in the female category of sports, you end up having a whole bunch of intersex athletes who have this, ad- this advantage and uh, women who are standard XX uh, genetic women who have no additional sort of adrenal hyperplasia or any kind of other um, um, sort of condition uh, simply cannot compete. That would be the consequence, yeah. So the only the only argument against that, and, and you'll hear it a lot, and I think both of you guys will uh, not sympathize but appreciate the, the, this argument, is that these intersex conditions are rare enough that the sport would not be overrun by them. So they're in such a minority that people say, well, then they should be allowed to compete. And it's the same mindset we've got about many things, I think, in life, is that we, we protect the minority often at the expense of the majority, um, and I'm not a I'm not a fan of that in, in this context or any other, but that's that's the argument that that might be made. You know, is that there are currently six out of 850 have this condition. Will it increase? I suspect so. I would imagine that in the next three or four generations there'll be 20 or 30 because now there's no requirement for them to. Yeah, to and then we wouldn't even notice. We wouldn't know that they were there. They're not really looking for it. Exactly. So there would be this subtle erosion of, of the what I would call the integrity of women's competition. So, so yeah, I'm 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 with you. I think that's what happens. But what it basically boils down to is whether the the rights of one individual to compete as they were born with this condition supersedes the rights of many individuals to compete in a fair and equitable sporting competition. As in as far as we can ever have fair and equitable sports competitions. Wouldn't uh, so another solution perhaps I don't know how viable it is, but to to actually just measure testosterone levels and let people with similar testosterone levels compete in the same uh, sports, so to speak. You categorize so, them in that way. Yeah, so that's not. It wasn't obviously stated, but that's not too far off the concept of having the guidelines as they stood before the court chucked them out last year in July. Because what was basically said, said then, as, as I was saying earlier, is that the, the two curves of men and women don't overlap. The, the top end of men, uh, sorry, the top end of women and the bottom end of men, in theory, are completely separate. So you could do that. The, the problem, I guess, is that there are certain medical conditions where you have got high testosterone, but you can't use it at all. So you have what's called complete insensitivity. And in that instance, I think it would be you would be unfairly excluded on the basis of testosterone. So you still have to make some allowance for the fact that you you, you want people to be able to self-identify. I think that's fair and a human right. And then secondly, you, you don't want to unfairly exclude anyone. And, and while it would happen very occasionally, the way around it is to say you can compete in the category in which you identify, but if there is a case to answer then testosterone becomes the deciding factor. And if you lower it, you can compete as a female. Well, well, I think that's very important. You know, this self-identification, I agree with you. You can identify however you want. And I am more than happy for Casa Semenya, for example. You know, we're talking about her. Uh, She identifies as a woman. She lives her life as a woman. That's perfectly fine. Um, I I think the problem comes in is, is there have to be some limits there in terms of if there comes along a male sprinter who decides he wants to identify as a female 
he wants to identify as a female, but he also wants to be allowed to compete um, against other females um, or uh, other women. Uh, you know, we don't want to mix up the terminology, but he identifies as a woman. He wants to compete against women. There would have to be something stopping him um, from unfairly disadvantaging uh, all those other women. Yeah. Exactly, and you and you could argue that it'd be quite obvious in that case, and and, and what you've presented there is an extreme example, but it's not, it's not completely. Well, in, uh, in the world we live in, I don't think it's that extreme. Well, no, no, no. It's, and and what, I, what what's happened in parallel to the Semania debate is a, is a separate debate around what happens to transgender athletes. So this is a male who then decides to change. So now we're talking Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, right? Yeah. Is if if that had happened fifteen twenty years ago. And the Caitlyn Jenner decided to compete in sport. Where, where do they belong? You see, because at that point, they would not have had enough time for the effect of that testosterone to have worn off. And there were actually transgender athletes like right now, as we have this conversation, uh, campaigning for people to continue to use testosterone even after the reassignment. Now, it's an athlete in Canada who's taken this case to, to court not to not to the court of arbitration for sport, but to normal public sort of court, and she's arguing that the suppression of testosterone that occurs in transgender athletes is also unethical and unfair and against human rights. So, so that is a logical extension of the argument: is is that we have to, at some point, defend the line between men and women. And to me, testosterone is the way to do that, regardless of whether they're transgender, self-identified trying to cheat or intersex, same thing. But there was a case in the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the, the, the cage fighting um, competition, whereby a, a man trans, whatever, morphed into a woman. I don't know what the terminology is. Yeah, changed. Uh, changed uh, into uh, a woman. Yeah. And they actually yeah. allowed her, Transition. the new her, to, to fight in yeah. the women's category. Right. And so. she, she actually beat up everyone so badly that actually – reverse the decision and banned her from fighting other women because right. she was 33 when she transitioned so she yeah. had the muscular the the, the muscles the, the bones the years of training as a man and she she absolutely obliterated everyone who who faced her so the way the way that it used to work in sports is when you went, underwent that <laughs> you used to have to have a mandatory period out where you were shown to either reduce your testosterone levels medically or you had to have had your testes removed so that you couldn't produce it any longer. And I think, I think it was 24 months, two, two years out. But as you say, the, the effects of testosterone, you see them for the first time in the womb at seven weeks. That's where the differentiation between men and women starts. And then you see them in puberty and adolescence. That's why when you go watch, you, you can watch 11 and 12-year-olds playing rugby together, and the boy might be tackled and overrun by the girl. They're, they're actually equal at that age. And then something physiological changes called puberty, which is almost entirely driven by testosterone. And for the next, in this case of that athlete, 20 years, you're deriving the benefits of that testosterone. It's not going away quickly. So mm. there again, it's to me, it's an example of how I'm all for inclusiveness and I'm all for gender rights and so forth. And I think that that's very important. And I'm grateful we live at a time when those rights are being discussed openly. But in sports competition, for biological reasons, you can't just open the door to anything anything that people want. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, you're one of the uh, – you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be one of the few people uh, in sort of uh, sports science um, in terms of 
uh, involved in, in these kinds of things that is willing to speak in this sense because what you're saying is not always well received uh, in the sort of political correct world that we live in. Uh, is anyone else saying any of this? Are anyone at the IOC concerned? Anyone at the RAAF? Uh, you know, is there, yeah. any, is there any sort of um, realization that uh, when, uh, when, well, by the time our listeners hear this, I think uh, Costa will be running this week uh, that you're listening to us. Uh, so mm-hmm. she's going to probably gold medal, as, as Ross mentioned. Um, and then, and then instead of us having dealt with this before, there's going to be a lot of uh, very difficult controversy to deal with thereafter. Yeah, and I'm not really looking forward to it. I mean, <laughs> back in 2009, I think it's an important discussion, and I think anyone who has integrity about this issue, whether it's from the perspective of sport or science or biology, really is 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 not fulfilling their responsibility if they don't speak up. So that's that's why I talk about it. But it's not it's not going to be pleasant. And I mean, I remember in 2009, like there was. It's just major abuse goes on because, you see, South Africans see it as racist, sexist, unpatriotic challenging of our gold medalist. And, and they respond to that with a great deal of emotion. From around the world, there's, there's a similar response, except here at home, it's just that much more loaded because it's our athlete and we have some sort of uh, entitlement to her and so on. And, and she is, make no mistake, she's treated incredibly unfairly. And I will do as much as possible to defend her against those unfair accusations, but not to shy away from the discussion. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be crazy. But to answer your question, the RWF has a team of people that are trying to put together a response to that court verdict because it was unusual in the sense that the court of arbitration didn't dismiss their guidelines entirely. Basically, what they said is that these guidelines currently are unenforceable, but you have two years to come back to us with more evidence. And so there is a group of scientists who are looking for that evidence. Um, basically, what the IWF are doing right now is they're watching the sports and they know who the five or six people are, and they are willing them to go faster and faster and faster because the faster they go, the more compelling the picture is. And they'll then be able to go back to the court in 2017 and say, Here's your evidence. Look how powerful this effect was. So they're in, a, in an unusual situation where they don't want this to be happening, but they're also hoping that it happens to such an extreme that they can go back and say, look how obvious this is. Yeah, I think the problem lies with, with the reaction I'm, I'm talking about now is that it's, it's beyond Mrs. Semenya's um, doing. It's something she's born with. Um, yeah. So, so that, that's where the difficulty is. It's not, it's not doping. She's not doing this intentionally. She doesn't have, you know, a, a team behind her that helps her out with this. It, it's something she was born with that gives her a massive advantage. And yeah. if we don't see that, I mean, we're not be really being honest with the, with the truth. Yeah. Correct. And, and you'll see a lot of accusations of cheating come real, by the way. Um, people will say that she's cheating. Are those Which, the false accusations you said you would stand up yeah, against? Yeah, that's false accusations. And people get really vicious. I mean, I was a couple of weeks ago just discussing it on a, on a pretty big track and field website on a, in a forum. And people will call Semenya he and it, and they'll be very derogatory. And there's a lot of crass jokes that will be made and so forth. I'm guilty and, of those. And they'll... Uh, <laughs> And they'll accuse her of cheating, which which is not fair in, in this uh, sense. As you've quite rightly said, this is not a case of an athlete 
who's gone out there to deliberately win medals in, in the wrong category. It's just a, a natural advantage, and we don't really know what we should do with it in a way that is fair for everyone. Because if you act in one direction, it's unfair for Semenya. If you act in the other direction, it's unfair for the competitors. So there's no there's no solution here that satisfies every single person in this in this particular situation. I understand that she's not doping, and it's not an intentional thing. She was she used Lady Gaga's song "Born This Way," um, but I um, I think there's a philosophical um, and personal ethical question to be asked, which is if you know you have an unfair advantage over all of your um, colleagues, um, do you just use that? Is that fair? Um, no, it's not fair, but that's why she should use it. Usain Bolt has an advantage over all these you know, uh, competitors. Of course they'll use it. I don't think it's up to her to... To, is there no, there to, no to limit gracefully there? walk, you know, to gracefully, you know, decline. When you're saying Bolt is beatable, that's the that's the difference, I think. When when even at his peak, he's he, he's beatable and he's he's a little bit better than. And when I say a little bit, that percentage that that Ross was referring to. Whereas, uh, you know, Costa at her best with assumptively a, a large amount of testosterone, up to uh, you know a thousand percent more than people she's running against. Uh, is 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 not doesn't have a small little. Um, I, I don't think it's up to her to to decide that. Uh, it's for the governing bodies of sport to to have various guidelines to try and include it, but not to to make it an equitable field in a way. Even if it means having um what do you call it um competitors similar to her in mm. a separate race altogether, if, if there's enough of them. Yeah, I think the whole premise of international elite sport is to find an advantage, and that's what you're trying to do all the time. So teams will invest in sport, different methods and science and so forth to try and find that half a percent here and there. Um, athletes will dope specifically for that purpose. So I certainly don't begrudge Semenya going out and making use of an advantage that she has, given that the authorities have told her that she can do so. Uh, and I agree there that the that the problem really is that the authorities have let it down and let the sport down with the way that this whole issue has been uh, managed. Dating back, I mean, this is not new. Mm. 1936 was the first case, and uh, we still haven't got a handle on it. So, and if it wasn't Semenya, it'd be someone else, right? Uh, well, as as you as you just said, at 70 years old, and nothing's been done about this issue. Exactly. So it, it would uh, it would just be somebody else. I mean. And to some extent, I and hope... And Semenya is not the only one. No, there are five. As I said, in 2011, there are five others in addition to her. The only thing is, because of 2009, we know Semenya. So she's become the personification of the debate. Uh, I wish... <laughs> I do wish that the others would be named because it would depersonalize it a lot. And we could rather talk about a group and a concept instead of an individual, which I think uh, is a little bit of a stumbling stone. But that's the situation we're in at the moment. Sure. All right. Let's let's take it on to intentional doping. Um, yeah. Where do you think we are? Uh, we're coming into the Olympics. We'll get on to uh, your pet project just now. But uh, where do you think uh, we are in terms of the Olympics? We've we've had the Russians um, sort of semi excluded uh, from the games. Yeah. Um, do you think it's going to be a clean games? Do you think there's such a thing? Um, no, and. I at this stage, in the, in the, if this was a marriage or a relationship, we'd be at the point now where neither side is talking to the other, and 
uh, they're just looking to pick fights with one another all the time. That's where doping control has gone in the last two years. And it's, it's largely, you know, I remember when I was studying, this is now going back a decade, um, this, the story then was that the testers were always two steps behind the dopers. So the science of drug taking was more advanced than the science of drug detecting, as it were. That's still proven, though. Uh, we see now where we test six, seven, eight years later and find positive B samples. Right. So that, that's still the case. I do, think, I do think we're one step behind now instead of two. And, and the reason for that is that different tools have been developed in the last decade, like the biological passport, which very briefly tracks the effect of a drug rather than the presence of a drug. Mm. So it's almost as though you don't need to find video footage of a guy committing yeah. the murder. You can put him away based on a set of... Yeah. Sort of it's knowing yeah. the physiology of someone, of an athlete, rather than looking for drug, essentially. Exactly. And it's certainly not foolproof. And we know that athletes have dodged it and gotten away with it, flown under the radar. But I think it has squeezed doping down a little bit. And, and so I think we're better off than we were a decade ago in the sense that the tools and the way in which we police doping has improved. Where I think we're substantially worse off is in the will. You know, we always talk like where there's a will, there's a way. My reading of it at the moment is that there just is not a will to, to police doping. Or perhaps there's one now, but the reason we're in the mess we are is because there hasn't been one. And, and there I'm referring specifically to governance. You know, doping control has been set up in a way that there is no incentive for those authorities to actually do their job. When the World Anti-Doping Agency gets emails from a whistleblower telling them about what's happening and they can't respond, all they can do is send those uh, allegations back to the people who are being accused. That's not a system that was ever going to work. And, and that's literally what happened. WADA gets this uh, batch of emails from a Russian uh, anti-doping agent and an athlete and their only response is to contact Russian anti-doping, telling them, by the way, you've been accused of this. Is it true? It's like... Yeah. It's well, it's asking the guy who just robbed the house if, if he, in fact, robbed the house when he has yeah, every incentive to hide the fact that he did that. It's ridiculous. It's like saying that the only method of investigation the police have is to ask you whether you committed the crime. And, and that's, that's how it was set up. And then at the same time, it was set up that every single national anti-doping body was responsible for policing its own athletes. So, But at the same time, they were getting funding from that national bodies uh, or those national sports. So what you're basically doing is you're asking a person to bite his own hand when it's feeding him. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mess because no, given, given how much prestige exists in sport, is, is the Jamaican anti-doping agency aggressively trying to catch Usain Bolt if he was doping? No way. Yeah. In the same way that would the, would the U.S. Olympic Committee's anti-doping bodies be serious about trying to catch Michael Phelps at the point now that he's got the record of Olympic medals? There's, there's no well, way. Well, they're entering a doper into the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. They've got, they've got dozens of them probably. I mean, they've got two in the 100-meter race alone. Yeah. The relay. Yeah, but they, but they forcefully gave Carl Lewis some in 92, didn't they? They let him off, you say. Well, they, they're the ones who actually gave him... Um, yeah. what do you call it uh, I don't know if you've seen Bigger, Stronger, Faster yes, it's a yeah. great documentary and yeah, they yeah. show that the, the US government or the sporting body whatever it was um, who was it um, Carl Lewis's opponent was caught for doping and Carl yeah. Lewis yes and Carl Lewis won the event and then like 20 years later they found out oh actually 
Carl Lewis was also doping, but not, yeah. not, nothing is said about that. But he was well, caught, that, but he was doped. He was being doped by his own U.S. team. Exactly. So that that whole documentary is about that final, and, and of the eight men, seven of them ended up being accused of failing testing, and there's only one guy, Mister Clean, in that race, and and that's exactly how it goes. So so where we are now, and what we've seen with Russia is that 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 level of state-sponsored doping that began in the 1950s and 60s, yeah, yeah. peaked in the 70s, particularly in Eastern Europe, but it's very easy for us in the West. To say, oh, it's like a Cold War phenomenon. It's the East versus the West, and it's the it's the dirty, dark, cheating Eastern Bloc nations that are that are doing it. And us on the West, we're squeaky clean. And you see that a lot now. Like you see it with Great Britain, with the USA. I, I don't know what it's like. Yeah, I wish, I hope <laughs> that we, that we've got at least some integrity. But it's human nature to try and cheat. So whether the athlete is getting doped in part of a planned, systematic scheme like the Russians, or whether that country is simply turning a blind eye, they're still facilitating doping, either directly or indirectly, and that's where we are, because the very people who are supposed to catch doping are also benefiting when doping happens, and that's not sustainable. Now, Ross, I don't know about you, but I look at doping in, in the greater context of the drug war. So you have these things that people want that will make them feel better or perform better, and it's banned because equality or whatever the case might be. But by, but banning something does not make it go away. So no. is there – I mean, I've always advocated that people should be free to use whatever drugs they wish. Um, but now for sport, do you think that is a viable option at all? I think we – yeah, I think we have to go halfway towards that. I don't think that we should say – Everyone can use anything at all that they wish to use for a few reasons that I'll get into. But I also don't think that the current situation of what is basically anti-doping micromanagement works. I don't know if either of you has ever picked up or looked at the list of substances that is actually banned. It's an encyclopedia. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, uh, now, what's the substance that the rugby players were, were um, nailed for? Yeah, it's called methyl hexanamine, and it's a very mild stimulant. Probably yeah. no. It has no. I would argue that on the field, that would have probably no effect. I don't know what your thoughts are. Exactly, the guy. The guy might have had a Red Bull before the game, and the caffeine in the Red Bull would have more effect than this drug, which is legal. Which is legal, right? Yet there it is, and all of a sudden you've got, and, and that's not just our rugby players. The two you're talking about, by the way, were um, Chili Boy Rallapelli and Bjorn Busson a few years back after a match against Wales. But that, that same drug caught up Asafa Powell of Jamaica, who people may know. He was, he was second to Bolt for many years on yeah. the world rankings. Johan Blake, who's the world 100-meter champion in 2011, I think it was. Yeah. It's caught uh, Sharon Simpson. It's caught a whole handful of Jamaicans. So we waste so much energy and so much controversy on stuff like that that I would really like to see the anti-doping list simplified to the point that we've got five or six drugs now, the, the steroid hormones would be on that list. Drugs like EPO, which is what cyclists use to boost their red blood cell carrying, uh, oxygen carrying capacity. Uh, growth hormone, some of the more powerful stimulants like amphetamines. I would argue that those should stay on the list, and I would rather allocate the resources to making sure that you can police five or six drugs than what we're currently trying to do with about 500 drugs. And the reason that I don't want to see doping control done away with is that to me, the, the fundamental purpose of anti-doping is not to catch cheats. That's, that's the means by which it achieves its real purpose. 
the real purpose is to protect clean athletes. And the reality is that doping is so powerful that if you did away with anti-doping, the effects of drugs would be so large that the only way anyone would be able to compete in the Olympic Games would be if they doped as well. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm naive, but I would like to have some level of control to say that you can still make it to the Olympics and you can still have a career as a professional sportsman if you don't dope. And the only way we will achieve that is by keeping some form of anti-doping in place. And then finally, uh, just because I'm talking a lot here, no problem. The, uh, the health risks of doping without any restriction might be larger than people that realize. I don't know what they are. Maybe actually you know, um, based on the bodybuilding world where it isn't regulated, but certainly in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of people doped themselves into some pretty serious health complications. And I would like for sport to steer clear of becoming you know, a guaranteed uh, disease or condition later in life. And I think, again, anti-doping helps to achieve that. So, so yeah, we're losing the fight in the sense that it looks terrible. But I still think that we're probably, with anti-doping, at least we're imposing some limits on what guys are doing. If we did away with it, that limit would be gone and, and it would fundamentally change sport and health. I mean, I, I see your point. Um, I, I'm not too sure that... I mean, doping by itself won't achieve anything. You need you need lots of hard work, and you need talent and the genetics to do a particular sport, right? I can take as much steroids as Mr. Olympia, Phil Heath, but I'll never look like him because he he was. If you look at the way he was when he was five, the guy just had you know, slabs of muscle, whereas I didn't at all. Sure. Um, I mean, I do understand why you would want to believe that people can still compete at a very high uh, level without without resorting to doping or being clean. So you think it should be a free-for-all? No, no, no. I think it's a romantic I think it's a romantic notion. I think people will always want the advantage all the time, legal, yeah. legal or illegal. So I do think that if people are clean about what they use, we can actually test these different uh, steroids or drugs or whatever the hell they use. And you have safety guidelines for them. If you make it illegal, no one's ever going to test yes, these things. That, so that's where the compromise might come in. And I don't disagree, you know. I'm, I'm actually more sympathetic towards the let's legalize doping argument than I am, for instance, to what we discussed previously around the testosterone in intersex athletes. And, and, I, and I understand what you're saying. And if there's a way that we could set up systems where athletes could take anything they wanted below some safe limit, then I would be all for that. The only problem is, is that if taking more than the safe limit improves performance, we'd still be in the same situation we are now because the athlete would say, okay, here's the ceiling. If I can go beyond the ceiling, I'll win. Therefore, I'm going to go for it. And you would still have to have some regulation of the system. So so we would effectively move the bar higher and make it a little bit less uh, taboo, a little bit less stigmatized, which would be good. But we would still have to have the regulation. But I, I do think that's where it's going. You know, If they can't get a handle on anti-doping, I would guess that, assuming the Olympics even exists in 30 years' time, that's what sport might look like. Because they, they actually did um, random surveys and studies, and they found that the average gym rat who wants to look like Mr. Olympia is taking far more steroids than Mr. Olympia himself. Uh, Mr. <laughs> Olympia has a doctor on hand who, who understands uh, these drugs. He understands when to use them, uh, what limits they have on them. And 
he's actually quite a healthy chap. He's got he's not afraid to say he's on steroids, but he goes through yeah. various medical checks every year, and everything always pans out well. Okay, you've got a high high mortality rate of bodybuilders, especially in their forties yeah. and fifties. True, but I do think all these risks are quite, are quite manageable if you are allowed to. To analyze and test them. See, I, I, I'm not sure those risks will ever be manageable. I think if, if, if it's a free for all, which I, it may end up as ultimately anyway, I, I'm not sure that the regulation, which essentially is what it is, um, changes that, uh, ultimately. But, uh, yeah. a free for all, I've, I've often joked, you know, let's, let them take whatever they want and let's watch the hundred meters get done in eight seconds. And, uh, you know, half of the field will literally have uh, myocardial infarctions as they cross the finish line and die. Um, you know, that that's kind of that, way. That's their prerogative. Um, People want to see eight seconds. Yeah, I, th- I agree with you. People do want to see eight seconds. I'm not sure that that is, uh, where Ross would like to see sports going. And I think where a lot of people watching sports probably don't want to see it yeah. end up. And I want to, and again, I want to protect the rights of an athlete who doesn't want to have a myocardial infarction when he wins an Olympic gold medal <laughs> because he had to go. So I would, I would like for the, the regulation to stay there, but I'll tell you what. I, if, if someone, if Wado was to phone me and say, listen, uh, we've seen your stuff, we've heard you on the Renegade Report, and we want you to help us. They listen the all thing, the time. This is where they'll find you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tell you what, the first thing I would do is I would organize a symposium of all the Mavericks and all the Renegades and all the dissenters, and I would put them in a room and I'd say, like, okay, here's the problem. How do we fix it? And, and you'd let people, Lance Armstrong chair the panel. Exactly. I would let him come in there. I would let Mr. Olympia come in there to tell us about that. I would get some of those East German athletes who, I mean, there's one it's sort of related to what we were talking about earlier. A girl called Heidi Kriegler was a shot put athlete for Eastern East Germany in the 80s. She underwent a sex change operation a few years back because she'd taken so many male hormones as an athlete that she basically turned into a man. I'd get her there and I would let, I would let all these different people with their different ideas some who are completely opposed to doping, some who are. I'd get athletes on board. You know, athletes have got no say over this, which is ridiculous because ultimately the athletes are the ones who are losing or winning uh, on anti-doping. So if I'm, a, okay, if I'm a track and field athlete, I'm happy because I've got no Russians to compete against in Rio. But if I, was <laughs> a, uh, if I was in any of the sports where they have been allowed, triathlon or any of those sports, I'd be standing on the start line saying, I've been let down by my system. The way to change the system is to give the athletes more influence over it. You know, I think they're the only ones who genuinely would have an incentive to weed out doping. So that's what I'd do. I'd, I'd turn the whole thing upside down. Mm-hmm. I'd get all the, uh, I'd get all the, all the crazies and all the nut jobs and all the dopers and the cheats and the doctors who've done it to come and tell us how to stop doing it dangerously. Absolutely. And that may mean making it legal, you know, but as long as you do it sensibly so that you can still protect what clean athletes want to do. Absolutely. And tell all the sporting brands to stop making these damn aspirational adverts that if you buy these shoes, you'll be Usain Bolt. I mean, it's all nonsense. Uh, not everyone's meant to be an athlete and certainly not everyone's meant to be a world champion. Exactly. Exactly. No, I agree with you. Uh, I got an email actually from someone inside one of the, the big nations Olympic codes. And he said that there's a real danger that they've that they've commoditized athletes to the point that it's all about winning and so on. And the and the message and the ambition is basically an invitation to do whatever you want to do. So I agree. The whole culture around sport drives doping, and it needs to be addressed. 
Okay, two examples I want to get into. So just quickly on, because based on what we've said, uh, perhaps Maria Sharapova shouldn't be banned for the Maldonium that she was taking, uh, which was clearly sinister. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, if, if I was to, so, so when I spoke about that earlier, I think Maldonium is one that I would leave on the list. You know, that was just a ridiculous situation of a drug that was developed for chronic disease, particularly cardiovascular, and then later yeah. they, they discovered that it had some benefits for diabetes. And what you had was a group of elite athletes taking a drug that should really only be taken by people in their 60s and yeah, 70s. With, with like no heart, uh, with, with no cardiac output from their heart, essentially. Yeah. It was, imagine, imagine you were in Rio now over the next few weeks, and you were a 70-year-old who suffered from some cardiac conditions, and you discovered, much to your dismay, that you'd left your maldonium or your, your, your heart <laughs> back home when you went to Rio. And you said, well, where am I going to find this drug now? I need it desperately. And the answer is that there's an Olympic village just down the road. And you can ask, you can ask any elite athlete and they'll give you the drug that you need. It's, it's, it's actually ridiculous that the world's healthiest people are the ones taking the, the drugs that are made for the world's unhealthiest people. So, so I, I think that... I guess one would have to look at maldonium and all the drugs on a case-by-case basis, but any chronic disease drug, I think, should be policed in elite athletes because it's only there to cheat, and it's just clearly not necessary, you know? So, no, but of course so, it's not necessary. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, Sharapova is guilty because the law at the time said she was guilty. Yeah. If the code was rewritten... Perhaps maldonium would come off it. I, I don't know. It depends on how powerful that is. I'm not a pharmaceutical expert or, mm. or an expert on disease, uh, cardio, cardiovascular disease. But, but yeah, she's guilty because the law said she was guilty. So I have little sympathy for her at this stage. But, but I mean, of course, it's unnecessary to take whatever the drug is. But you cannot regulate that, that competitive edge that people want. Well, that's no. one. I mean, you can't regulate it. I mean, there will be new drugs in in next year or in five years or in a decade that we'll never even think about uh, testing for until a decade after they've actually been used. Actually, let me let me say you you can regulate that competitive edge, which is what anti-doping does now. What you can't do is take it away. Like, so you can, right. you can try and uh, it's like hitting the crocodile at the fairground. You know, you can say, okay, they're taking this substance, so we're going to hit there. And then the head will pop up somewhere else. Now we go there. And so that's, that's what it's like a little bit at the moment. It's very reactive and so on. And so, again, we come back to the concept that I, I wouldn't be averse or opposed to the idea of having a, a real frank discussion around what needs to be legal and what needs to not be legal. But I, but I would not go so far. I mean, at some point I'll stand my ground and say we can't get rid of all of it because it just isn't. And, again, I'm being romantic here, as you said. But it's it's not pure and it's not fair on athletes who want to be clean and it's not healthy. Okay, so let's go to the athletes who are really clean. Team Sky um, in the <laughs> Tour de France. Um, uh, they obviously um, you, they have Chris Froome, who is their lead sort of cyclist and and, and a very good team behind him. Probably uh, South African as well. Uh, important to know. Well, not proudly, just a very um, undercover South African. Um, so. They 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 claim to be very very clean. They claim to basically have been part of uh, cleaning up cycling, essentially yeah. after what happened with um, Lance Armstrong. And 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 let's be honest, uh, Lance Armstrong was the sort of uh, poster child for probably fifteen years 
of uh, cyclists who all pretty much doped. Well, the scapegoats. Uh, yeah. I mean, essentially, this this Tour de France races during the Lance era, who we actually don't know. I think the seventieth person or something ended up winning the stage or something silly like that. That's that. a joke. Yeah, that's a joke. So, but but it's not far off from the truth. So um, now they talk about. Um, this has been controversial for a couple of years because obviously Froome's been around for a while, the team as well. Um, last year he did something that seemed physiologically impossible um, yeah. or unlikely, put it that way. Um, you can explain shortly. And this year, to try counter any accusations that there's something dodgy happening, uh, Team Sky have ta- spoken about something called marginal gains. So do you want to just chat to us about What's kind of happened with Chris Froome that's been a little bit off um, and these marginal gains? Yeah, let me, let me sort of preface that by, by taking you back to 2005 when, when the Lance era ended. At that stage, obviously, well, let's go even further back. In 1999, 2000, when the Lance era began, we'd just come out of the, the cycling's biggest crisis, the Festina scandal of 1998, and the sport really needed to have a hero who was clean. And Lance's story came along, and it was just the perfect story for the perfect audience because of the cancer survivor. He could quite believably stand up and say, how would I dope? I've basically faced death down. I'm not going to risk my health. And people thought, ah, that must be true. <laughs> and over over the course of a few years, because I was studying at the same time, like in learning, when you learn a little bit about the human body and the physiology and, and limits and so on, we start talking to people who are a little bit more in the know. You start thinking like, you know, this Lance story doesn't quite add up. And, and then, of course, circumstantial things started to come out. And, and by 2004-05, it was pretty clear that that was a dodgy, uh, non-authentic uh, story of, of Armstrong's. Then 2006, Floyd gets caught for doping, Floyd Landis. 2007, Rasmussen gets thrown off the tour. Every year, there's just more and more drama. And you're thinking like there's no trust in cycling. But the scrutiny on the sport caused things to change for a short time. And from about 2008, 9, 10, I was optimistic that things were at least headed in the right direction. Certainly not clean, but getting a little bit better. You know? And one of the things on which I base that is that the, the performances in the mountain were slowing down. So we can calculate. I wish we had the actual data, but we can't. So we have to do some calculations. But we can work out more or less plus or minus 1% or 2%, how much power output the cyclists are producing. And that's a key variable. So so we're doing that. And, and I started doing that, incidentally, because David Walsh uh, suggested that I do it to try and help catch Lance. David Walsh was an Irish journalist who made it his mission to catch Armstrong for doping. And, and did an excellent job of it, it must be said. Yeah, yeah. He, he, was, he was dogged and determined, and he managed to unearth all kinds of whistleblowers and people who would testify. And in the end, had a movie made about that particular pursuit. Uh, we'll talk about where Walsh is now in a moment. But um, point going back to that, then you see around 2011, 2012, things started to change a little bit. The performances got a little bit faster. Things started to look a little bit more like they used to. And, and my earlier optimism and, and hope that it was heading in the right direction slowly started to change. And in that context, Sky came along. And they came into the sport on a on a chariot of promises that they were going to be transparent and open and clean and that they were going to do things the right way. The problem is that none of those promises ever really came to fruition. So 
All the calls for transparency have subsequently been ignored. Uh, their marginal gains approach has, has become more and more outrageous to me, um, to the point of actually being just a PR marketing campaign. The same was true of some of their hirings. They said that they'd have a zero-tolerance policy. They ended up hiring some very well-known dodgy doping doctors and riders. And, and the timing of it all, Chris Froome's emergence in 2011 coincided with a lot of those uh, revelations that all was not as transparent and pure at Sky as it would seem. And, and to me, that invites questions because the sport has taught us that we can't just accept things at face value. And so, therefore, you've got to start asking questions. Is What was uh, the Dutch doctor, Gert Leinders, doing at Sky? Okay, then they told us he was weighing, he was weighing cyclists. That was his main function. He's saying to me, <laughs> you're going to hire a doctor, a doctor on payroll to weigh. It's, it's just ridiculous. To read a scale. Some of, nice. some of the evasiveness that was going on. The, the, the Froome Balazia story, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. It's just the whole transformation, the whole marginal gains thing, it just all strikes me as being untrustworthy. And so that's why the questions exist. And it's not just Sky. Uh, people always say that, and I can appreciate why, because the big discussion is held around the tour every year. And I don't know what the Spanish and the French and the Italian teams are claiming, because I can't read the newspapers over there. But I can read what the what the British press is saying, and all I'm seeing is a lot of fawning, and uh, no one's really interrogating the facts and the questions and the inconsistencies, whereas when you look back at the 2000s, that was exactly the same thing that was happening on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, because mm-hmm. none of the American journalists wanted to ask the questions then. So a lot of the suspicion now is just pattern recognition, you know, it's just seeing similar things repeating themselves. Is it possible that they have uh, honest and noble explanations? Of course. And that's why no one's, no one's going to say, I know, well, some do. I'm not going to say, I know that Sky are doping. I'm just saying that there's a lot to answer for. And some of the promises that they've made and some of the explanations that they've given just are, to me, improbable, if not impossible, as, as valid. What's the uh, sort of uh, discussion that's been happening with, between you and uh, Matthew Sayed? Uh, he's a columnist, uh, sports columnist at the Times, I think, in, in, in the UK. Yeah, yeah well known. He's, he's written a couple of books, Bounce Was One and Black Box Thinking, and he writes for the Times. Sports columnist of the year, apparently, um, over there. And about a month ago, I was in, uh, I was in um, Portland, uh, not Portland, Eugene, Oregon, for the U.S. track and field trials. And I went for a drink with a very well-known or very famous coach. He's worked with a number of Olympic athletes, including some champions. And he told me a story about how much he knows about what's going on at the top of the sport in doping all around the world, USA, England, where he'd coached and so on. And I said to him, like, why is it that you know all this and you're not telling? Like, surely, surely you can do so much good if you come out. And he said to me, because he learned very quickly that if you come out against that system, you are literally in fear for your life. And he told me, and I, I've got no reason to doubt the guy, he told me that he's got three or four copies of documents that prove doping, emails that were sent back and forth, letters, blood test results of very high-profile athletes and, and people in, in governance of the sport. And he's left instructions that if anything were to happen to him, these documents, which are currently in safe deposit boxes all over the USA, must be released to the media. So this is like this is like John Grisham novel-type thriller stuff. Well, yeah, this and is like the mafia type of yeah. thing. Exactly, exactly. So that's how fearful people are. 
So I wrote an article. But, well, I tweeted this, this account from this coach. And, and my point was that everyone says, oh, if, if people were doping, they'd be whistleblowers. And that's not the case. Lance Armstrong had whistleblowers because he was just a grade A douche. You know, like the guy, the guy just mistreated so many people and he abused so many people. And that's why people were willing to come out and talk about him. If he'd been better towards people, I suspect that he would still be the seven-time champion. There'd be a lot of doubt about him, and not many people would genuinely believe it, but he would never have come down the way that he has. So my point was that when we look for whistleblowers and when we look for people to come and spill the beans, we're being tremendously naive because the system, again, doesn't gear that. Anyway, point was, Syed took offense to that and, uh, and, and wrote a piece in the Times mocking the account, saying how ludicrous it was and that the media are doing everything that they can. And, and I subsequently responded. And that's, that's the short version of that particular story. Well, and another reason to, to legalize all drugs then. I mean, if the, <laughs> if the sports teams are the ones enforcing, uh, doping measures on the athletes and they will kill, literally, it sounds, anyone who exposes them, uh, well, anti-doping doesn't work then. I mean, it's, it, am I just being like really obvious? Yeah, so, so the, the, I think the difference between, for me, between legalizing drugs, for example, in a general society for people to use as they wish, and then for people to choose to use drugs within a sport is that sports have rules. So why not just legalize illegal tackles in, in rugby? Or, yeah. uh, because that would give you an advantage as the opposite team. Firstly, you break the necks of half the other players. Uh, and, uh, you know, secondly. No, you, but that's like saying. In, in bo- so they're rules. No, they're rules but, yeah, in sports. Of course, they're rules in sports. But, uh, but having more testosterone won't make you do high tackles, right? High tackles are dangerous for a reason. So you can, you can still, you can still negate those, those injuries on, on the rugby field. But if, if the one guy is taking creatine and the other guy is taking pure testosterone, you can still say don't tackle above the head. I mean, it's not difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, I still think it's a rule within sport that you want some sort of you want to try and make equal an equal playing Yeah, but equality is bullshit, man. There's always one winner at the end of the hundred meters, right? How equal is that? It's not. There's an equal. There, there's a, still an, a relatively fair chance, and we see this in in sports with with you generally don't have people winning again and again and again. Okay, um, Usain Bolt, Penny Haynes. Yeah, but they, they are. Once, once they get older, they, they start losing. They but are, during the Tiger Woods, how many years? 12 years? But ta- Number one? Tiger's a very separate example. Anyway, Ross, do you want to butt in? Yeah, I see you uh, leaning in. Yeah, no, I just, uh, again, it comes back to me to what perhaps is the romantic Olympic ideal of uh, not equality in sport. Because, I mean, no one, I mean, I'm. I'm working as a sports scientist to try and change equality in the sport for the team that I'm working in, right? But I do, I do think that the health implications of doping, along with the just what's generally accepted as as a moral code, basically, mean that you can't just absolutely legalize it. I'm all for a discussion around changing the dynamic and changing the conversation, destigmatizing it. I think that might achieve the whistleblowing issue that we've been speaking about now. But the complete legalization for me is just a step or two too far. All right, Ross. I mean, yeah, we can disagree on that as much as we can. I think we, I think the audience can can decide for themselves now. So now, final final topic: uh, transformation. We need more um, black swimmers and cyclists in in our whatever South African team, and it's very important that the demographic lines up exactly 
with the demographics of the country because reasons. Um, no one really knows because why. Because racism. Because yes, because racism. racism, right. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, why is that a bad idea? I think, I think you believe that. I'm looking for words in your mouth. And uh, secondly, if we do want proper transformation, which I think it, most people do want, how can we actually achieve that uh, without, without a, a, an arbitrary range of quota? Let's start by saying what's the, what's the utopic or the, or the best case scenario is that, we, is that we're sitting and we're looking at South African sport. What do we want to say with respect to the racial composition of our team? Now, the problem is, as you've alluded to, is that there is a group of people who want to force the team to look like the country. In other words, the, the 15 players or the 23 in the squad must be a, a, a miniature representation of South Africa's demographic. And that's ludicrous. <laughs> but what I do think we want to be able to say is that when we look at that team playing and when we look at across South Africa, we, we want to be able to say that nobody in this country has had a disadvantage in terms of being able to get access into that group of players. That's, that, to me, is what transformation should achieve. It's equal opportunities, not equal outcomes. Exactly. So, in other words, we want to be able to know that the composition of those 23 players who, t who sing the anthem before a test match reflects the equal opportunity of every single boy from the age of 10 or 11 or ever young you want to start, who aspires to participate, that they've got the same access. In other words, that not all of them have to walk through the double, double, uh, double glass doors, but some have to climb through the window and others have got to squeeze through the drain pipe. We want everyone to be able to access that squad the same way. Now, the, the problem is that the political pressure means that we, that we don't ever have that discussion. We, we instead try to force the outcome, which is ridiculous. So in the case of rugby... I'm not yet convinced that the different so, – so let's – okay, let's start on the premise, which maybe you'll agree, yes or no, is that rugby success is determined in very large part by physical attributes. That's – I hope that everyone listening to this will agree that's a given. In other words, tiny, slow people who lack strength don't play rugby. <laughs> uh, yes. In the, same way, in the same way that access to NBA basketball requires that you have to be 6'5", or if you're not, or six foot at least, and if you're not, that you have to be able to jump like incredibly high. Off, or you have to have disproportionately long arms so that you can play the sport high above the ground. That's a given. And last point, just to belabor the point, if you want to be a world-class long-distance runner, you have to be incredibly skinny with long legs relative to your body and certain other things. Now, I don't know, coming back to rugby, whether anyone has ever adequately assessed or asked whether all the demographics and racial groups in South Africa possess those characteristics in equal measure. For instance, when I look at South African rugby players and I look in the lock position or in the forwards, I see a lot of really big guys who owe their size and their strength to their Afrikaans heritage. Now, it's not to say that there are not Zulu, Kosa, Sutu people who could not be as large and as strong as that. But out of 100 people the probability of finding the characteristics might be significantly higher in one group than another group. And you can and say the reverse for, for example, speed. So exactly. you are much more likely to find a very quick sprinter in the Zulu or Sutu community um, yeah. than you would probably be in the Afrikaans community, which would, would, would fit a wing better, for example. Exactly. In exactly. So it could very well be 
that the system is working the way that it's supposed to and that people have equal opportunity. But the reason that the team doesn't look like the country is because the sport imposes certain requirements that the country can't meet. Now, that's the case. In, in, in West Africa, you've got these enormous guys who are unbelievably good sprinters. They would not be able to produce good distance runners. Kenya will not be able to produce, out of its distance running tribe, really good sevens rugby players. They've got good sevens players, but they don't come from the same group of people that the distance runners do. So there are genetic differences that might make it more or less difficult for one population to succeed in a sport. There are no pygmies in the NBA is basically the, the, the bottom line. Now, the, 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 the problem coming back to transformation is that historically in this country, it is true that certain groups have had less opportunity than others. And I think it is good that we try and address those in the sense that we have, what's it, 50 million people in South Africa. So there are probably 10 million viable men who could be picked for that South African rugby side. We pick out of 1 million which means that we're letting 9 million potential springboks go to waste because of historical problems. So transformation is actually critical to the success of our rugby team in the future because it will allow us to expand the population from which we choose. But if we force transformation by trying to and, – and, and if we ignore certain physiological and physical realities, then we basically just compound a, an existing problem – and we make, and we again, we create a stigma around black players who are unselected. So I just think we're incredibly uninformed at the governance level about how we go about it. I don't think about transformation as as like a BE policy. It helps those those players who don't actually need it. I mean, I would argue, I don't watch rugby, but I know there's yeah. someone called JP Peterson who happens to be black. I know all the black players in the Springbok team deserve to be there. I think. Yeah, no, yeah. I, would, I would absolutely you know, agree. They, they all deserve to be there. I don't think they need a policy to give them a hand up. And if you do give I, them a policy to give a hand up, it's very patronizing to them. And it, it, it draws suspicions from spectators. Same as BEE, sure. right? The same principle applies. Exactly. So, so then I'll ask you this question. Is where would your, where would your focus of transformation be then instead? Uh, grassroots. Exactly. I would argue yeah, so, in so, schools, in uh, maybe universities. A, a, I, think, I see that's happening there. Absolutely agree. But you see, it's not even universities because I, I think scientifically we can probably back this up, Ross. Um, an athlete develops uh, quite a lot in terms of their ability uh, through their adolescent and, and teen years, essentially. So trying to manipulate the system with 25-year-old or even 20-year-old rugby or cricket players is way too late um, to try and sort of create some sort of um, diversity amongst who you're picking. Uh, yeah. So you have to give – that's why grassroots is so important. It's not just about um, getting everyone access. It's about the fact that the development of those skills and abilities happens at that age. Absolutely. And, and it's about understanding that it, it is a long-term plan. Uh, you know, things, these things do take time. To expect, the, to expect the Springboks to represent the demographics after 20 years is, is frankly a bit ridiculous in my eyes. So the, the key is exposure to the sport at the right ages. And the, and the right ages seem to be when you are just finishing primary school, starting high school. And then you have to keep that person in the sport through adolescence because that's, that's basically the fork in the road. You know, you go one direction or the other. You either develop the characteristics you need to play rugby or you don't. So you, you have to have a very specific catchment net at the age of about 14, 15, 16 
in order to deal with that and then but not not closing the door on them so so what i what i would say around transformation is that transformation is basically just biased or targeted talent id that that's how it should be run and what is talent id talent id is saying that today is the 2nd of august 2016 we want to look forward 15 years or 14 years to the to the 2nd of august in 2030 and we want a south african rugby team that represents this country that means that we need 26 year olds in 14 years time that means that 12 today talent id is where are they transformation is where are the black players today and we don't know the answer to that question so so therefore we are we are waiting and we're guessing and we're hoping that they emerge at the age of 19 20 so that we can pluck them out and say you're in a super rugby team and then Alistair Kutsia or whoever that might be in 14 years time can say oh luckily me i've got 10 black players and colored players to choose from that's just that's just how we've run the strategy in the past and it's foolish until until we can actually say let's get down there and let's figure out how we're going to do talent id we won't be able to do transformation yeah I- Nothing really to add there. Yeah, and if you just hopefully uh, wait upon black players to appear in in fifteen years' time, it's often from the same schools, right? It's often from the same private boys' schools that actually have a lot of money to put into rugby. Exactly. So you're still exclusionary in yeah. any case. Exactly. So it's not really correcting anything; it's just reinforcing things. So, and then the final point, just on that, is that there are undoubtedly barriers that black players face that. white players don't even at school level so for example studies have been done in craven week rugby which show that black players are significantly smaller they start gym training significantly later their diets are far more likely to be inadequate in terms of what an elite athlete needs even as a even as a 17 18 year old so those are those are levers that we need to be able to say how can we how can we pull that how can we address the diet how can we address access to gym and strength training in in black players at the age of 16 17 because if we could do that then we can answer that question is everyone given equal opportunity yes or no at the moment it's probably no but you're not going to change the opportunity by forcing the profile at the top it's just yeah. a stupid yeah. idea and the only reason it's done is because politicians are more interested in what's in the shop window than what's actually in the factory yeah all that social economic um things that 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 hamper black players i mean just a simple thing like transport for example or just the yeah. fact that you live in proximity to a center that teaches rugby or that your school has rugby i mean those are all socioeconomic so if if that is a failure it's the very same government who fails those people who wants you know to, them to be represented in the spring box but the basic socioeconomic factors are not within their favor you get failed in the economics of being able to put food on the table you fail in being able to become a sportsman yeah simple as that same same concept um ross yeah. just just to close it out uh tell us what you're doing with world rugby uh yeah, so and what you're up to uh, these days i well as you know i used to be at the university here in cape town and i left in december 2014 uh and then shortly there was like the LCHF buffets well it was that was part of it you know like <laughs> all, the whole environment around uh, the sports science institute and the, the university's exercise science department changed a little bit there and i felt it was a good time to uh, to jump ship it, it was the banting buffet yeah so then i took this job with world rugby where i'm there to help facilitate the scientific research that they need 
in order to make decisions. So World Rugby, for those who don't know, is, is what used to be called the IRB, which is the global body that governs the sport. And so primarily it influences law. Um, and I've been quite involved in some studies recently that we're doing ourselves, well, I'm doing, looking at head injuries and concussions and, and the effect of uh, different tackle types on head injuries. And the mm. purpose of doing that is can we identify what we might do in order to reduce that risk to players. Maybe it's law change, maybe it's a coaching instruction, maybe it's something around the education of referees and players and coaches. But we need to understand how those head injuries are happening in order to design targeted interventions. So that's that's been one big project. There's been a couple others. Well, on well kudos government. to you because I, I mean, I, I have a sort of pet hate with FIFA, which is uh, that they don't ever manage head injuries. Um, I've regularly seen them put players with, with obvious concussions back onto the field uh, in yeah. World Cup matches. And, and it just seems that uh, World Rugby is far better at dealing with this. We see players being pulled off, going for concussion testing, um, being rested for appropriate periods of time. Sometimes uh, I'm debatable on that, but, but there's something happening. Yeah, and I mean, again, people can say I'm a little bit biased because I'm working there now, but I, I think initially, you know, the controversy began over in the United States with American football and the long-term implications of head injury there, and, mm. and maybe viewers have seen movies like Concussion, and you've heard of chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the proper name, but uh, it's where it's where the players have developed early-onset Alzheimer's and dementia, and I think rugby took a few lessons from that and recognized that the same might be coming their way. And then really got ahead of it, and I and I and I do believe there's a great deal of integrity in their efforts to try and reduce the risk because it's a big threat to the sport. You know, if if 50% of parents and and uh, and children decide that they're not going to play the sport because of that risk, then that's a, that's a big problem. So the incentive is in part that, and also just in part that's the right thing to do. So yeah, so we're looking at law change and and coaching and so on that might be made in that regard. That's been a big. Uh, consumer of my time over the last few months and then there's a few other things around law trials that are done and I have to manage the scientific research around those. We fund research around the world so I'm on a panel that allocates money to universities for rugby related projects. So yeah, it's a pretty diverse job. There's a little bit on it that's high performance related, sevens particularly, uh, which is where I used to work so I quite enjoy that. So it's nice and varied and I, I hope it, I hope it lasts. Yeah, sounds excellent. Um, well, uh, anything from you, Ramon? Uh, no, just that uh, sports ball is not as boring as I expected. Um, <laughs> glad to, well, glad to speak to you, Ross. I think it was a very informative yeah. uh, conversation for for me, especially, and uh, hopefully for our listeners. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really appreciate that we could talk directly and frankly about stuff like. When you deal with the media a lot, like there's, there's unwritten rules, you know, that you can't go in certain places and you can't say certain things. And mm. It's quite refreshing to well, be able to do that. I hope I haven't pissed off too many people. No, and I, and I would say if you're listening to this um, or you've, I don't know, cut and paste some sort of single line from this and you want to attack Ross, uh, go ahead. Uh, but uh, perhaps go and go to his website. It's sportsscientist.com. He's got a great article there specifically uh, if you're upset about the Casa Semenya stuff. I think that's that's what people get uh, most uh, annoyed about. He's got a great article explaining it, giving you the science behind it. Um, and, you know, if you want to still then have an argument or discussion, go ahead, but um, at least do it from an informed point of view. 
But but Ross, just be aware that we, we've been doing this for four or five months now. Not not one single hate mail has arrived because the the, the people who are outraged don't have um, the time and effort to to listen to an hour podcast and to get outraged about every single thing for an hour. They just prefer like a, a tweet. To get about. Yeah. So I wouldn't worry too much. Small minds, small minds. Uh, you guys can find uh, Ross on um, Science of Sport. Um, you'll uh, you'll be able to pick him up there. That's his Twitter handle. Uh, yeah, sorry, that's his Twitter handle. Um, obviously, his website, as I mentioned, sportscientist.com. Uh, any closing thoughts, Ramon? Um, no, I'm Nothing. all good. I'm all good. Uh, legalize uh, all drugs for everyone. <laughs> legalize all drugs, and you haven't changed your mind. You're not voting tomorrow. No. No voting. No, I'm taking my dogs for a walk. I think that's more beneficial. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. I hope that there's a nice park where you can walk your dogs. Absolutely. And who's that provided by again? That's a private park. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> right. By, we'll... the, by the ANC. Vote by for the them. ANC. Vote for them. Good parks for everyone. Sure, sure. I hope you don't step in anything. Uh, this is the Renegade Report. You can find us on Facebook, uh, our page, Renegade Report. On Twitter, renegade underscore report. You can find Ramon at Roman Kabanek, myself at Jonathan underscore wit. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye.